this is our fourth and final top tips of 2022. We did something completely different this time round. Instead of um, honing in on a topic which our regular attendees choose via Survey Monkey. This time we opened up the session to questions and interestingly we got lots and lots of questions um, which we are delighted to respond to this morning. Um, we're not going to cover questions on the gender pay gap or on protected disclosures because we've covered those in our most recent two webinars the recordings of which are on our website if you want to have a look at them. So with the exclusion of those two areas, we have grouped together the questions that we got. Um, before I kick off with the questions, I just want to introduce us for any of our new attendees. My name is Melanie Crowley and I am the head of the employment practice here in Mason Hayes and Curran. I'm joined this morning by Jer Connolly. Jer is the other senior partner in the practice. And we're asking ourselves this morning why we didn't outsource this to other members of our team, uh, but we just didn't get around to it. So we are here and we're delighted to be here. Um, so we're going to kick off and we're going to, just to put some flow to this, we grouped the questions um, in order of kind of the beginning of the employment relationship, the middle of the employment relationship, and then the end. And we've paraphrased some of the questions, others we're going to go through verbatim. Um, and there's also a Q&A box at the bottom of your screen. We're hoping to leave some time for uh, random questions at the end, which we will try to get to you. So if there, if there are issues that we haven't covered or you're afraid we might not cover, Put your questions in there, assuming, of course, you haven't already sent them in, because if you have, uh, we've probably caught them. So to kick off, just before we dive into the employment relationship, Ger, there is new uh, employment permits bill. Now, this is kind of an, an immigration issue, but Ger heads our immigration practice. So Ger, just in a couple of minutes, give us an idea of what's in the new bill and how it's going to affect employers. Um, the bill came out in October and it's actually a consolidation of existing legislation. So as of today, we have the Employment Permits Act covers three, has, has had three updates, 2003, 2006, and then 2014. So it has been reviewed and it's believed that it should be consolidated into one act, which is quite, quite helpful, but it also has resulted in the act being an extremely big document. It's now running to over 96 pages. There is not fundamental changes within the Act for the simple reason is that a review committee had a look at the employment permit system in 2018, and the review has come back and said the current system is fairly workable and they don't want to see wholesale changes. And it's it's probably interesting that it's a section of the department that has, has been able to stress test its own performance in that last year, 16,000 employment permits was issued in the state, up from 9,000. So they're more or less doubling yeah, their amount of permits that are issued this year. And um, it is again estimated that even despite the fact that we're heading maybe to you know tougher economic climate, that they still believe that there will be a demand of someplace north of 15,000 permits. Um, so the system is effective, the system is working, it's a consolidation. There is some new things that will be introduced. There will be a thing for the first time called seasonal permits. Uh, the department did test this previously in. In, in meat factories when they needed more processing, 
but things like I think in the UK they had issues about you know fruit pickers and things like that. So there is going to be the concept of seasonal permits that are going to be at the minister's discretion, and we're also going to see if you want to call it the system becoming more modernized. You know, it's a system that's all done online, but things like the labour market needs test. Up until now, you still have to apply or advertise the job in a newspaper. But now that's gone, and it will. Or sorry, when the act, when the act, when the bill becomes an act, it will be gone, and everything will be more aligned, and it'll be more flexible. Probably the the, the bigger thing for people in this area is that a lot of the guidelines are going to become regulations, and this is going to give what the departments uh, or the minister in particular says flexibility in that regulations can be issued very quickly by the department, as opposed to there being statutory instruments as there goes to be amendments to the act. So it's not a fundamental change um, to a system because the system is working, but there is probably a, you know, a more modern, uh, modern kind of tone that's going to go, to go through the system with some, uh, with some minor changes um, to, 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 to it in the near future. Jerry, just before we move on, um, any any non EEA or Swiss national needs permission to work in Ireland? Any non EEA Swiss national, are okay. Swiss nationals do have a right. Uh, yes. a separate right. So anybody so comes out EEA, EEA. Yes. How long, roughly speaking, if any of our participants are, are are thinking about hiring somebody from outside the European Economic Area or Switzerland? How long roughly do they need to factor into their timing for an employment permit application to be processed? As of today, it's at an all-time record low in that the department have their processing times down to four weeks. But it's important to realize that that's from when the application is filed to when the application is actually uh, processed. And we estimate that there's probably two to four weeks of if you want, gathering up documentation like such things as evidence of qualifications that people may or may not have to hand. So when you are hiring, it's probably best as of today to allow eight weeks, but it's important that it is a system that can go up and down and time and the processing times can go up and down. It had gone out to 16 weeks and the department uh, put a huge amount of resources into the system and it's now down to four weeks. But I think four to six weeks is the average processing time and will be going forward. But for new people hiring, I think two months is a good estimate. Okay, thank you for that. Okay. The, one of the questions, Melanie, that we had, and one of the things we're seeing more often is, you want to call it, we're seeing the offers of employment and probation. So if we go with the first one, is that we are obviously heading into uh, more difficult times. What's your advice where an employee has entered, has been offered a job, entered into the, um, the, the contract employment, but before the start date, there has been a change of heart or a change of circumstances for, for the employer? Yeah, this is a question I don't think, well, sorry, we rarely got asked pre-COVID. And um, when COVID hit, um, we were inundated with requests for advice around what to do when an offer of employment had been made and accepted, but the individual hadn't started. Because there was lots of concerns about, you know, setting somebody up to work remote to work remotely. And, and the same issue is arising now again in the context of the tightening of belts that's going on around the country, given, as Jared says, the 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 economic climate. 
my advice um, and the team's advice when an offer of employment has been accepted is that that offer can no longer be rescinded. So once an offer has been accepted, um, whether that acceptance is you know, verbal or whether it's written or whether a contract has been signed, once it's been accepted, it's not legally permissible to simply try to rescind the contract. Now, lots of employers are doing it and getting away with it, but getting away with it and being legally permissible or legally correct are two different things. So the correct thing to do is to terminate the employment relationship even though it hasn't really started, just because the employee hasn't started work. There are, there are contractual obligations there. So the correct thing to do is to terminate the employment relationship on notice. Now, happily, most employers have probationary periods during which an employee's employment is terminable on a week's notice or two weeks notice. So that's the level of notice that is required. I appreciate that means putting somebody on payroll and getting their tax details and all of that, but that is the reality of what should be done when an employer isn't in a position to proceed with the commencement of uh, uh, someone's employment. And that brings on then to the probationary period. So obviously, as I said, people have probationary period, but I think it'd be good for people to understand that. When can you activate the probationary clause? As in, when do you have to wait until the end of the, you know, the end of the three months or the end of the six months or whatever? And then obviously when you're extending it, what's the formalities or how do you think you know that, that people should address this extension where it's necessary yeah so most contracts of employment contain probationary clauses and uh, they generally say something like your employment will be you know the first six months of your employment will be probation on a probationary basis and we reserve the right to extend your probationary period at our discretion and during your probation your employment will be terminable on a week's notice um the purpose of that probationary period is to review and assess and determine suitability um, and um, the practicalities of somebody um, fitting and falling into a role. Um, when, an, when a probationary clause allows for the probationary period to be extended, um, that should be done before the end of the probationary period. So. Sometimes the date is missed and employers come and say, well, can we can we retrospectively extend the probationary period? And the answer to that is no. Um, if an employee isn't performing well during the probationary period, it is correct and the right thing to do to give them a heads up and to give them the support uh, that they may require to, to get them to the place where they are performing correctly. Um, and, and likewise, if an employee hasn't passed a probation, that is something that should be notified to the employee prior to the end of the probationary period, because it's not, again, legally correct to try and retrospectively terminate somebody after the end of the probationary period. What happens if the probationary period um, is over and an employee's employment hasn't been terminated, they then become entitled to the longer notice provisions provided for in the contract of employment. One thing that is worth flagging at this stage is that there is a European directive, <clears throat> excuse me, on transparent and predictable working conditions. We should have implemented that by, I think, August. Um, we haven't yet. And in fairness to the government, I think that's because lots of the provisions in it are already part of our statutory framework. So a lot of them already there, but there are some elements of that directive which still have to be transposed into Irish law one of the provisions of the directive 
is a prohibition on probationary periods um, of longer than six months. Um, now, so that is something that's coming down the tracks for all employers in this jurisdiction. It is, however, worth remembering that employees don't have protection from dismissal under the unfair dismissal legislation until they have a year of service. Um, so it's, it, I don't see why an employer couldn't, you know, going forward saying, well, your probation period is six months, but during the second six months of your employment, we reserve the right to terminate your employment on a week's notice or two weeks notice. And then after that, the termination entitlement, the notice clause can be longer. So it's still, it's still, you know, it's not going to make a huge difference to us, but it is something that employers are going to have to be conscious of if they are trying to extend probationary periods beyond the, the kind of the six month period once this directive is transposed into Irish law. But when that happens, you will all know if you're on our mailing list because we will send it, we'll make sure you know about it. Um, back to you, Jer, because one of the other things that's coming down the tracks in Ireland next year from with effect from the 1st of January is, is statutory sick pay. And that's not something that we've had. It's something that our nearest and dearest neighbours in the UK have had for years, but we don't have it. So just before we look at the provisions of legislation, Jer, just remind our participants here what the current situation is in relation to sick pay in employment. So sick pay is entirely at the employer's discretion. And it's when the minister was introducing this act, he mentioned the fact that in the private sector, about 50% of the workforce do not get paid any sick pay whatsoever. I'm not sure how, where that statistic came out of, but that was allegedly one of the drivers that during COVID, that there was this gap between, if you want to call it the public sector and the private sector, and we're 50%. So it's entirely at the employer's discretion. It has to be said that while it's at the employer's discretion, in the contracts that we see, majority of them would contain some element of sick pay. And it, it, it can vary hugely to five days per year, one month per year, up to very generous schemes of six months sick pay, and then you fall into a permanent health insurance policy. So there can be, um, there can be huge variations to that, but it's very much at the employer's discretion of what it wants to introduce to the, to, to the employees. And, and then there's, we, we do have, which which I think is quite unique to Ireland, we do this entitlement to illness benefit. Yeah, and, and this is, I think this is what the, so if we look at what the Act is trying to do. So sick pay is going to be introduced from the 1st of January, and it's going to give three, three days sick leave, our sick pays are called statutory sick pay, and then it's going to go from five, up to five days, seven days, and by 2025, it's going to be up to 10 days. But what it's trying to do is it's trying to address the gap. The current system is where a person is sick after three days of Ill absence, they can have illness benefit. And that's still going to exist. That has not been uh, removed. But what it's trying to do is that the first three days, which at the moment are where people are not being paid, it's trying to fill in that gap. That's the initial gap that it's trying to fill. So where an employee provides a sick certificate, they're entitled to statutory sick pay. A lot, of, a lot of employees are unhappy in that it forces you to the doctor really early and you have to incur your expense quite early in the process. Mm -hmm. uh, but you, it's, it's the system that, that, that the government see as workable. It will then, for, it will then be called statutory sick days. Um, and then for, so for, for three, those first three days, you're entitled to 70% of your wages, but it's capped at 110 euros. 
uh, the cap has a, and I would I would assume because even in the announcement it referenced what sick pay is in Northern Ireland and in the UK in that it is £97. So you can see the equivalent of the Republic and Northern Ireland that we're going to have very, very similar uh, sick day provisions. It's not going to create a fundamental alteration to your contracts. So if your existing sick pay is more generous, that is fine. You, you don't have to go, but you'll probably have to, you, sorry, you will have to reference that your payment includes any entitlement to the statutory sick pay that's going to be introduced, as I said, from the 1st of January, and then after it will increase slightly over the next couple of years. The requirement for a medical certificate is interesting, and I presume it's there to stop the, you know, the messing that sometimes we see, the Monday morning messing yeah. or the, you know, the day after the night before. But it is interesting that there's a cap of 110 euro for statutory sick pay, and yet a trip to the GP will cost what 50 or 50, 60, 50, 60 quid. 50. So it's um it is it is it's I suppose trying to get that balance right. trying to get yeah. the balance and it, it's important that, that 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 is what's going to be called statutory sick pay. So that, that's gonna and then we may end up in a situation where if you don't produce a certificate, it's just called sick pay and it's going to be at the enforced discretion of whether or not they are going to 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 pay it because there could be this argument that the, that the employee is not complying with the the, the necessity of a, a a medical certificate. So it's certainly it's going to be new. It's going to be um, I think you have to get over the period of how it's not really the value of it. It's kind of you know, the mechanism as well that that's going to have to be looked at. Okay. Um, remote working. I think we in all top tips, Melanie. I think we get about. Uh, 20 to 25 percent of the questions are all about remote working it seems that um, and our poll deliberately had remote working uh, queries because it's still a very I think when you meet anyone they also they always ask how many days a week are you going into the office and um, so we've seen last week there was again if you want to call it new legislation but can you just explain to people that was it new legislation did it is there anything fundamental that we need to, as an employer, that yeah. you need to be aware of. Okay, so the world has changed. We all know that. We're all working differently, and we we certainly are, and our teams here are. Um, and, and in the background and against all of that, we had the overadker make this commitment around the right to disconnect and, you know, the, the commitment to make sure that we remote working. And against that backdrop, the government issued some draft heads of legislation earlier in the year around the right to request remote working um, and they set out how an employee would make a request the fact that an employer would have to set out the reasons for a refusal um, the requirements to have a policy around uh, remote working and, and actually a very unusual provision in that draft that said um, it would be a criminal offence not to have a policy, a criminal offence, which is which is quite distinctive. And then a mechanism for making a complaint, not about the substance of a refusal to uh, a refusal for a request, but uh, about the timing and the, the, the provisions of that timing set out, was set out in that um, heads of legislation. There was a fair bit of backlash to the... Um, uh, draft heads of legislation as it was then our heads of bill um, and I, I I think I was quite vocally critical of it myself so last Wednesday night with some uh, aplomb the government announced a new work-life balance and miscellaneous provisions bill 
and said that they are going to um, fast track this bill with the hope that they might have it in by the end of the year. Certainly that's the impression I got from the um, communications issued from the government departments. And they also described this as the bill which would deal with the right to request remote working. Um, it's interesting because the bill does three things, okay? And the third thing it does is kind of deal with re the request for remote working. I'll get to that in a second. So the first thing that the bill does is it provides for leave for medical care, right? Now, this leave is five days in any 12 months. And um, it, is, it is for the significant care or support for serious medical reason to a specified person. And that specified person, like other legislation, is a child, a spouse, uh, a dependent, a, a parent, and, and that's set out in, in the bill. So that is um, unpaid and it's five days in any 12 month period and it's for medical care. So that's the first thing the bill is proposing to do. The second thing the bill is proposing to do, and again, it's something the government has been talking about for some time, and it's to provide for paid leave for domestic violence reasons, right? So this is five days again, five days in any 12 month period. And in that situation, it will be paid by the employer. And the purpose of the domestic violence leave is to allow the victim of domestic violence to get medical attention, to seek support and have access to support services, to go to the Gardaí, to make an application in court for a restraining order or to attend court. So that is something actually that that I think is, you know, has been long awaited and it will be great to have that in place for, for victims of domestic violence. And the third thing the uh, draft bill um, does is provide for a request, the right to request flexible working arrangements for caring purposes. So flexible working arrangements for caring purposes. Now, let's just talk first of, uh, about, about kind of the flexible working arrangements because the draft bill says that flexi flexible working arrangements can include a change in hours and remote working. So there's the remote working piece, um, but it limits it to caring purposes. And they specify that that's for caring for a child, um, or else providing, and again, here's the wording again, significant care or support for a serious medical condition for a specified person, which again is the, you know, the spouse, the parent, um, the, the uh, I suppose, a dependent resident in the house. Um, so a right to request flexible working arrangements for caring purposes is much, much narrower than a right to request remote working. And I don't know if the government's plan is to have a separate piece of legislation for around the right to request remote working generally, or whether this is it, because certainly some of the press releases I read seem to suggest that this is it, but this is much, much, much narrower than, than what was there before. But yet, a lot of the provisions of the draft bill um, mirror what was in the original kind of right to request remote working uh, proposals from a few months ago. So it sets out kind of a mechanism for an employee to, um, to make the request and it sets out a timeline 
for an employer to respond with reasons if there's a refusal or to seek an extension if the employer isn't in a position to respond. Um, it says that if the employee is going to take this type of leave, they have to have at least six months service before the leave commences. It actually specifies the child and the age of the child um, that, that the caring has to be done for, if you like. Sorry, that sounds a bit crude, but that's what the legislation is trying to have the draft bill is trying to get to. Um, and then it provides for a mechanism for an employee to make a complaint to the Workplace Relations Commission. But again, like the previous draft, that complaint is only around the timing and not the substance of an employer's refusal. So an employer's refusal for a right to request these flexible working arrangements, which includes remote working for caring purposes, can be fairly watery and there's nothing an employee can do about it. So I think that's interesting and I wonder whether it makes it, you know, a little bit like the last draft, a bit of a damp squib. So that's interesting um, and I think it's a space to be watched. But I wonder whether, because it's kind of buried in here, whether it will be through and passed before the general public actually get wind of the fact that it's actually very limited and what that means in terms of knock on or, or a more general request, um, I'm not entirely sure. So that's a kind of a watch this space, but it's a watch it fairly closely between now and Christmas in case it does get shoved through because it is something we're all going to have to live with um, next year and, and afterwards. But it's also watch this space. Will they do something more general around um, around the like, remote working as distinct from flexible working? Because I don't know, you, Gerber, flexible working to me is more about hours and start times and you know taking an hour off during the day to go and get groceries or pick the young lad up from school or whatever it is whereas remote working is about the physical location well, it, 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 what what the act has shown is a, a fundamental kind of change to the headline it was as if every person had the right regardless of your family circumstances to request flexible working but if, if based on just on, on, on that high level overview it's a severe limitation on what is being proposed and you always get the question then is that fair in that if you have a family you will benefit from flexibility and if you don't have a family you don't benefit from the flexibility and there's various care there's various leaves parental leave paternity leave and other leaves that again and um, probably well the majority are unpaid but it's probably silent that 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 element of kind of defense as opposed to a much more wider um possibility of requesting these leaves and is that something that might come separately or later on um i have a question for you jared because it's one we got several times and it's around dsars subject to access requests from employees um and it's something that i and jared and the rest of the team flag to clients in almost every single conversation that we have now despite the fact that most of what we say is covered by legal professional privilege but it is important that um, HR practitioners, managers and organisations are very conscious of the possibility of a subject access request. So, Ger, start at the beginning. What is a subject access request and why am I banging on about them all the time? So, a, a subject access request is allows an employee, um, it's a Freedom of Information Act request if you're in the public sector, um, to access to the personal data that is relevant to you. Now, there's a distinction between personal data and data which is just compiling or, or which is accumulated 
in when you're day-to-day -day working. So that is separate. So when you put in a subject access request, you're seeking personal data held by that data processor that belongs to you. And um, it excludes, if you want to call it day-to-day -day work. So if you put in a subject access request, you're not entitled to a full copy of your inbox because there is a separation of what is personal data, if you want to call it work-related data that's associated with your job. It's an extremely powerful tool, particularly in employee and employer relationships and in litigation because it is free. And um, in theory, it does not even have to be committed to writing. You can do it orally or, or, or just uh, uh, by, by request. But more often than not, it is, it is, it is, is accompanied in writing. And simply someone saying, can I have, yeah. I'm making a subject access request, can I have my personal data? Please? And that lack of formality is something that came in post the GDPR. Right. Yeah. And, and that means actually you have to really read an employee's request for information to to see whether it is a subject access request because it mightn't at first glance look correct. Look yeah, at and years ago it used to be I think a subject access request used to be can I have can I have a copy of my HR file? Mm -hmm. uh, and I sometimes wonder how many physical HR files does there exist in uh, does there exist anymore? But it's you know because personal data would be about workday or or other things how we combine them or where we get our data from when they. When it is received, the employer has 30 days in which to respond to the request. The employer can extend this by another two months, but it's only in fairly limited circumstances. And when you look at the Data Protection Commissioner's website, they're very clear that it should be in complex situations. So if you have an employee who has said, I want all personal data relating to my redundancy, my bonus payment, and they have narrowed down the search, it is very difficult for you, for the employer to seek that extension of 90 days because that information should be relatively quickly uh, gathered. The important part is that it's just not covering emails. In theory, it covers WhatsApps, text messages, um, and it has notes of, that are taken at meetings, handwritten notes. So it's extremely uh, extensive. And what we would always recommend is that when you receive a subject access request, our top tip is you should designate someone in charge of it because 30 days goes by extremely quickly and the employee has every right after 30 days where you have not sought the extension to um, to make a complaint to the data protection commissioner who does actively engage and want to know why have you failed with your obligation. There is very few exceptions that the data protection commissioner will accept because it believes that this is a right um, and it's right between uh, in all European countries that the data should be given to the employee once it's requested. Jerry, you, you might just remind our participants why we raise this in every single conversation we're having with our clients, whether that's in the context of a redundancy or a grievance or a disciplinary process or, or whatever. I think every single case that we have on our desk that ends in, in, before the WRC will have a subject access request element to it. The reason being is that there's no discovery process in statutory claims. So you don't get the information as if in a civil court you would look for discovery. And in fact, discovery in those cases are quite narrow. It has to be relevant to the proceedings. Personal data can be anything and everything. So it is the cheapest form of discovery that you're ever going to get in all cases. And that's why 
when you think about it, it's free for the employee to make the request. It places significant um, pressure on the employer to comply with the 30 days. And more importantly, who knows what golden nuggets that they're going to find in the subject access request. In, for example, in a redundancy situation, we have seen cases where the people who are going to be made redundant have already been disclosed prior to the process even starting. Dismissals before even investigation have, um, has even commenced where the person is, we have to find his or her replacement. So there is a huge amount of data that can be beneficial in the cases. And that data or that email correspondence or personal data, it is it has to be handed over to the employee. It is not subject to any legally, any legal privilege. Copy and just your in-house person on it does not does not create legal privilege. And it is it is without fail, it is probably the best and cheapest form of getting discovery from the employer. And that's why we all say when you write an email, you should always beyond the view that it's going to be shown to the third party or to the employee. And if you bear that kind of tip in mind, it, it then, of course, will, will formulate how you write these emails and you'll be more circumspect rather than be very committal to. Or just don't put the employee's name in it. <laughs> so so our, our, our top tip here is use, use an X, use a Y, use a matchstick man, use a symbol, but keep the employee's name out of it. If it's something you want to make sure um, doesn't have to be shared in the context of a future subject access request. And this is particularly important at the moment. We're in the midst of all of these enormous redundancy exercises or, 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 or you know, consideration to cost-cutting measures where their charts being create, created and lines being put through people's names. And again, all of that would have to be shared with an employee, only the, the, the bit that relates to them. But if you can do it without names in it, then much safer, much safer. So two interesting topics um, that has recently come up, Melanie, and we've seen a lot in the last, particularly probably more in the UK yeah. than we have seen here, but the trends you're seeing for people who are availing of IVF, and yeah. then you have the opposite end spectrum where people are just men yeah. menopause. So what's what's the trends in terms of policies and what are what yeah. employers doing? I think my age group must be trendsetters on this because I think these guys, they, this particular topic's following my life around. Um, so, so there were lots of conversations about, you know, 14 or 15 years ago around, you know, transparency about IVF and whether organizations should have policies around time off for, um, reproduction related reasons and that sounds quite cold and callous but I think the practice had grown up of people taking sick leave and there was um some momentum at the time to um on, you know where where some organizations uh, uh, created policies around time off for IVF and, and related procedures it's back in the news again it's back in the news in the context um as well of time off for um miscarriages um just just to be clear the legislation provides that a miscarriage is something that happens before 24 weeks and a stillbirth is something that happens after 24 weeks so after 24 weeks an employee who goes through the awful ordeal of a, of a stillbirth is entitled to full maternity leave but for somebody who's a day shy of that 
um, are a week shy of that, there are no entitlements. And there's a huge campaign in the UK to do something about this at the moment. Um, employers are, and have been for the last few years, looking at the IVF piece, the miscarriage piece, we're not seeing lots and lots uh, around it. Ivana Bacic, um, in the middle of last year, prepared a, a draft bill, interestingly, one that fell under the Organisation Working Time Act. And what she was proposing, what the Labour Party were proposing in that was 10 days leave in a year um, for IVF or, or kind of related reasons, and then 20 days leave uh, if for, for someone who suffers uh, from a miscarriage. Now, when there's when there's bills like this that are driven by parties, particularly smaller parties, and when there's bills that are kind of private members' bills, they tend to get a certain, you know, length of the way down the legislative process that they start in the Senate and then go before the the doll. That is in about the third stage, but it has stalled. She she did get her and her Labour Party colleagues had a little bit of momentum going when they introduced it um, last August, 12 months. There was quite a bit of press around it, um, but it kind of has stalled. And I, I think there's so much going on at the moment. I'm not hopeful that it is something that will be progressed further down the legislative process. Some organisations are doing their own thing. Um, I there's you know, little have introduced a um, uh, a policy of two days paid leave per IVF cycle. Um, Vodafone announced relatively recently um, 10 days paid leave for pregnancy loss before 24 weeks because they say full maternity leave after um, for a loss after 24 weeks. And then um, 10 days paid fertility leave, so 10 and 10. So Vodafone have done that and Vodafone have been at the forefront of a lot of these family friendly type policies and uh, and procedures and the tech companies as well are particularly good in this space, uh, in my experience, so um, they are, you know, some of that's driven, I expect, by employee recruitment and retention reasons, but they've always been good about you know, IVF, about miscarriage, about family leave, about sharing it across, you know, both partners in the relationship. So, so at the moment where we are with IVF and other reproduction issues and with miscarriage is that there's no legislation. There is this kind of bit in the background, but I'd be very surprised if it goes anywhere and, um, and, and then down to individual organisations with the bigger ones actually getting some very positive press around some of the policies that they're putting in place for these kinds of issues. And the other thing that lots of organisations are talking about at the moment, and, and it's kind of the hot topic and everybody likes talking about it, is menopause and what employers should be doing for that and whether employers should have menopause policies. Um, that's kind of a tricky one because you know, I even at my stage in life, I look back, I, I think, oh, God, what can go into a policy? And I think you know, a policy, if an organization were to have one around menopause, I think it's more around awareness and signs and being empathetic and being aware of issues. And I think that's probably more important than a policy that provides for paid leave because 
menopause is one of those things that, that affects people in lots of different ways. And there's lots of different stats about how, the effects and the impacts it has on people. What's interesting, though, and I say that, is that Bank of Ireland very recently announced a menopause policy and a practice of giving people, women, 10 days uh, paid leave for menopause-related reasons. So, um, you know, like a domestic Irish institution doing that is 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 interesting, and particularly one um, like like Bank of Ireland. So that's that's interesting. There's a lot to talk about it. Um, I think it's a watch this space, but for employers who are thinking about doing it, my own personal view is that it doesn't necessarily about have to be about paid days off or paid leave. It might more be about a policy around signs, training, awareness, perhaps some flexibility uh, around remote working um, or flexible working where symptoms are particularly strong for that period of time. It doesn't have to last forever. So it's 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 a there's no real law around it at the moment. And some of this is just being driven by the age of our workforce and uh, presumably women of my age who are particularly vocal about these things. So that is IVF, miscarriage, menopause, just kind of hot topics at the moment and, and things to be uh, to be mindful of. Okay. Um, we're going to go on to the more, if you want to call it the more, the more common questions. Uh, every single time we get asked about sick leave, so family. <laughs> you have sickly questions for me. And I have then, a sickly question for you. So we, we, every single time we, we do a talk, sick leave is probably the most topical issue that we get. And every time we do Survey Monkey after one of these top tips, people are, we get asked about sick leave. And we have done some sessions on on on, on sick leave and how to manage it. Um, but the most common question that we get and the one that we get again several times when we ask questions in advance of this session was how to manage um, performance processes and conduct related disciplinary processes when the sick search arrives in and we've all seen them and and this isn't just me being a cynic or Jer being a cynic because you know I say to people we, we see it when it goes wrong um, but it seems kind of par for the course now that an employee who is being um, performance managed or disciplined, they then send in a medical certificate. So, Jer, some tips for kind of how to manage that. I, I think the first tip is it just happens. I think when you look at it and overall, I can't tell you statistically, but in at least 50% of cases when a grievance happens, a disciplinary or, or conduct related issue breaks out. Um, there's a correlation simple between the sick pay policy and your uh, absenteeism rate that results from disciplinary. If you have a very generous sickness policy, the employee again, you know, feels that they can use the policy. And if being very cynical and representing more employers than employees, um, it's a way of kicking the can down, down the road. And then there's idea of that everything should be paused on a disciplinary or a grievance or a PIP until the employees fit to participate and sometimes there can be months if not i think in one case that i have i think it was four years the person was on sick leave between between and and we, you know what was going to happen of course the disciplinary matter was going to happen 
there is a way to do it, but a lot of employers don't want to do it in that we recommend that they update their handbooks and their sick list policies that say that where its medical certificate arrives following the implementation of a, an investigation or disciplinary that you will not pay sick pay. So effectively, you do disincentivize the employee for going on sick leave. They may still go on sick leave, but if you're not being paid or where it, 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 it does have the effect of that the person does deal with the issue and realize that they have to come back to work and deal with it quickly. But I have to say that while we we recommended a lot, and employers are, are slightly can be slightly slow in taking it off to see it as quite a draconian measure. But we've also seen a policy that has said, I will not pay sick pay if it's stress related, and uh, which again is a very blunt tool, considering that probably stress-related illnesses in this situation is probably the most common one that you will see in the medical certificate. So there is a mechanism of how it's addressed. But it's a question of whether you, as the employer, wants to take up the mechanism through your your, your policies. We're quick fire rounds now, Jerry. Okay. So we have time for some questions. Uh, one of the other questions that we got, and this is something we do when we draft contracts of employment, we include a retirement age of sixty-five, um, and and we do that as a matter of course, and we explain why we do it. But one of the questions that we got in in preparation for this is. When a contract of employment specifies a retirement age of 65, does the employee have to retire when they reach 65? And what are the implications of that for, for an employer? So that's a yes. They, 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 an employer can still enforce the retirement age within a contract of employment, provided it's objectively justifiable and it's trying to achieve a certain aim. So um, I think there's like, sometimes the press headlines can be slightly different than if you look, the public sector has tried to kind of uh, overhaul its retirement age that now, yes, you can still get a state pension at 66, but a public servant can go work until they're 70 and can obtain a higher pension. So, and when it was announced, when the Taoiseach was asked about it, he said, I wish the private sector would adopt something similar. So there's this kind of, uh, there's a clash obviously between the public sector and private sector, but yes, you can enforce retirement age. What is being recommended, and it's on the WRC website uh, in terms of the guidelines for longer living, is that earlier engagement with the employer, employee, whether or not they want to retire, and a lot of people are defaulting into they retire, but the person goes on to a one-year fixed-term contract or a two-year fixed-term contract um, where they want to extend their working time. But I think there's a misconception that the power to retire a person now lies with the employee indicating that they no longer want to work as opposed to the employer still being able to introduce or rely upon its retirement age. But it's also important that the employer has the justification. Correct, the absolutely. Age. And, yeah. and the justification is becoming harder and harder because, um, um, you know, effectively it wants, it, it wants to make the employer work. And retirement age cannot be seen as a, you want to call it a, a mechanism to address something else, such poor performance and other things. Um, this one, Melanie, redundancies, I think we've seen in the last, certainly in the paper in the last few weeks, but I suppose as our business ourselves, we have seen a, a pickup in, in, in redundancy. I think the, the one of the questions that uh, I get asked a lot uh, when people find out what I do for a living is the 30-day consultation process, which is applicable to collect redundancies. Are these companies who are making large-scale redundancies, are they simply ignoring it do they have the right to ignore it? But what is actually yeah. happening in practice? Um, 
the answer to that is is no, right? Um, and we we have done some tips around redundancy generally there on the web, um, uh, as as there is a little video. Um, but but just on collective when, when redundancies with and the number of redundancies or the number of people being made redundant reaches a certain level within an organization, the collective redundancy legislation is triggered and that puts an onus on an employer to do things like notify the minister, facilitate the election of employee representatives if they're not already there, inform and consult with those representatives for a period of 30 days before the first dismissal takes effect. There's been, you know, lots of suggestion in the press recently that some employers are flouting that. I don't believe that to be the case. I haven't um, experienced or come across any employers flouting that. And I suspect the reason for that is because the legislation is very clear that it's a criminal offence not to comply with the provisions of the legislation. So there's a fine of about €5,000 for a failure to notify the minister in the required form. There's a fine of €5,000 for the failure to provide information to employees. There's a fine for failure to keep records. The fine, and it's a criminal offence, right? So it's a criminal fine on the company and the officers of the company for failure to inform and consult for 30 days is €250,000. So it's not to be sniffed at uh, and it's there for a reason. And it is a criminal offence. So it's something that, you know, the board would have to be complicit in and, and all of that. I think some of the press reports, um, you know, which happens occasionally, but some of the press reports have been a little bit misleading, probably driven by some of the emotion coming from some of those organisations. But certainly in my practice, I haven't come across, and, you know, bear in mind, there are almost 30 lawyers in the employment practice in Mason Hayes. So we're a fairly good measure of what's going on in the market. And nobody on our team has come across or advised on or been involved in or even heard of an organization not complying with the 30-day information consultation process. So, so yeah, don't believe everything you read in the papers. I have a question for you because yeah. it's one that's coming up in the context of some of the advice that we're giving at the moment. I, I also think actually what we do is kind of a measure of what's going on, what's going on generally in the economy because our advice swings from lots of work contracts and policies and incentive schemes uh, and, uh, and employment permit applications to advices on restructurings. And yes, we are doing a lot more work on restructurings and redundancies now than we were doing 12 months ago. But interestingly, it's not all we're doing. And it's it seems quite confined to certain sectors at the moment. So that's just worth, I suppose, saying. But one of the things we are being asked, Jer, is is lasting first out still a good criterion and is it still common? Um, it's not a good criterion. Yeah. Is it common? Probably let, not, as, not as common as you would think. Um, why people sometimes think that actually the, 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 the person who's lasting is sometimes the better worker than the person who's there on a longer term. But it can be used. There's no reason why it shouldn't be used. Some companies, are very wedded to it. Some companies are looking at it now in terms of their production, but it's still very much in use. People, some people like it because it's quite simplistic at its heart. It's that it has very little characteristics of your male, female, or age profile. So it, it's it's uh, it's it's used and it's still relevant. Uh, I'm going to ask you another question, Jer. While I have a look at the questions on yeah. here, um, talk to me about 
the requirement for an employee to get independent legal advice when they're signing a waiver, because that's something that we have a very, very firm view on across the team, but so, not necessarily one that's shared. It's not, okay, so in the UK, you have to, the person has to get legal advice before, and otherwise the agreement's not valid. We, uh, we do not, it's not a legal requirement. As a firm and as a group, we, we insist upon it, and we believe that it it protects the employer significantly. Usually you make a contribution of maybe 200 or 300 euros plus fat, but we have had situations and we've had a number of cases where the employee who has signed a waiver comes back or a severance agreement with the view that they failed to understand what they were waiving. And we think it's a very cheap, not a cheap, but it's a, a very good way of ensuring that the employee has it. So. The Mason Hayes policy is that yes, should be there, and uh, we insist upon it. It's not a legal requirement, and ultimately, it's up to the employer to make that decision or not. But um, it's certainly something that we uh, strongly encourage. There's a couple of questions here, Jared, that are super, super quick fire ones. So I'm going to call them out to you. Can the notice period be different for the employee and the company in the contract of employment? Yeah, it would be. Yeah. It could, could be, um, like, for example, you could have just one week's notice, but due to length passage of time, you know, statutory notice would kick in. So, yes. In theory, but it can be different, absolutely. Be, yeah. And, and, and it's not that, that uncommon no, for it to be different. No. Here's another one for you, um, or maybe it's for me. The paid medical leave you mentioned in the draft bill, is that separate to force majority? The answer to that is yes, it is. Um, so, Ger, here's one for you. Maybe not that quick fire one. Can an employer unilaterally change an employee's role? No. It's in, you know, it's um you know, you can't simply say you're today your CFO, tomorrow your CEO. You know, there's a there's an element of um is the role may be made redundant then? So you you know, is the existing role being made redundant? But at a very high level, uh, we don't permit unilateral changes to contractual terms. Um, and if you do go down the unilateral route, well, there can be there can be consequences for it. I have two immigration questions for you. Okay. You're in the hot seat now, because I get the I have the iPad. <laughs> uh, are, are employment permits required uh, from non-EU EEA country, i.e. the UK? So are no. Yeah. no. Why not? The, it's actually through the Good Friday agreement that gives us it's nothing to do with EU legislation. It's how we can go work in the UK and people go work in uh, Ireland. So the Good Friday Agreement is actually what provides for us the, for the, the exchange of labour between two districts. Okay, and here's one, Jerk, and it's one, I, I, it isn't immigration specific, but it's one I see asked all the time. So if an employee on a stamp 1G are waiting for, is it waiting for an extension to be processed by the GNIB, but their current stamp has just expired, are they legally allowed to continue working while their application is being processed? Uh, it's a, it's a, technically no. Technically, you must always have a valid stamp between, um, and that you can't simply have a, an expired stamp. Over the last number of, I suppose, twelve months, the department has become, uh, I won't say, have, are accepting that true processing times that is relevant to them. That that's creating a log jam, and they will. They will overlook the wrong term, but they're more relaxed. But the strict legal, and it's important that the strictly legal point of view is that you must always have a valid permit in place, a valid stamp in place, 
and that the employer whose obligation is to ensure that the employee has the correct permit should not be engaged with these people in that. I'm, I'm, I'm like that unless that's, that's okay. the case. Um, there's one here, and I'm going to hand you this to get the poll oh, results. Yeah. Uh, the EU Directive on Transparent and Predictable Working Conditions seems to have a prohibition on probationary periods of more than six months. Does this mean that all probationary periods can only be six months? Uh, or they can be six months with an or can they be six months with an option to extend the probation period for a further nine months? My view, uh, sorry, and I tried to say that earlier on. My view is that um, once the directive is transposed, it's likely that there will be uh, a prohibition on probationary periods being longer than six months. But that doesn't mean an employer can't still say your employment during months seven to twelve can be terminated on a week's notice and then after 12 months, so once they've got the year and they're into the protection of the unfair dismissal act, the notice period can be longer. So I think that's actually a way that it might be dealt with uh, that way. So oh, Quickly do the survey results because yeah. everyone lost the survey. So um, what are your hiring plans for 2023? Interestingly enough that um, the is only 6% expect a staff increase, still nearly 40% are looking at increasing or remaining steady. So it's the market is more positive than negative, I think is, is and particularly it's good to hear when I think that our newspapers are kind of full of bad news at the moment. On Super average, uh, yeah, exactly. On average, how many days do employees tend the office? Never a 7%, under two is 47%. And um scroll up on the screen there. Sorry. Um, and then you can just come up the screen and then between three and four, 38% and five day a week. So you can very much still see that actually one to two days per week is actually the winner of the, uh, the amount of time that people are in the, are in the office. Um, are there plans to increase office attendance? The answer, 50% have said a firm no. Uh, yes, ideally increase somewhat, but not full time. And then if you actually add those two figures together, you get more or less, you get 70, over 75% have effectively committed to a hybrid working yeah. model. I wonder about um, this too, though. I wonder whether people's home heating bills will force them back into the office. Well, only 4%, only 4% have gone back to back to a full-time model. Mm -hmm. So you can see, um, I think there's probably a middle ground that we're going to have to hit. And then what will be the top challenges uh, in 2023, would you believe it? It's still talent finding and retaining it is still 53%. Wage inflation is 33%. And the latter two, which probably deserve as much uh, is work, uh, greater focus on employee well-being and workplace motivation, they are combined 15%. So finding talent and paying for the talents look like the most uh, the most uh, pressing needs. Then they would probably, if we did a survey, at the start of the year, it's probably the exact same at the end of the year, despite what's happening in, in the in the press. It's a minute after 12. I think I think we timed that okay. Um, thank you to all of our suppressed participants. Uh, the numbers are phenomenal. Thank you for those who sent us in questions beforehand. Thank you for those who's who sent them in during the webinar and apologies to the ones that we didn't get to. Um, we hope you enjoyed this session. We will be back with our regular topic focused top tips uh in the new year because i'm not mentioning the 25th of december um we will send out a survey monkey you will see as always that at the end of it we invite some suggestions for the topics that you'd like to have covered 
I'd like to remind you though that there are many of our tips and top tips and our webinar recordings on our website. Uh, we, we issue very regular e-zines. So if that's something that you're interested in, make sure you register. Other than that, uh, we'd like to wish you all well. Stay safe and we will see you. Oh, we'll see you next year.